Hello and welcome to Background Briefing, available 24-7 at backgroundbriefing.org. I'm Ian Masters, and today we'll look into a number of stories and issues in the news. We'll begin and go to Kiev and speak with Simon Schuster, a reporter for Time magazine based in New York City by way of Moscow, Kiev and Berlin. He has previously covered Russia and the former Soviet Union for Reuters, the Associated Press, the Moscow Times and Foreign Policy, and his latest article at Time is A Visit to the Crime Scene, Russian Troops Left Behind at a Summer Camp in Bucha. We will discuss the decisive battle about to begin in the Donbass, which the Ukrainians have to win and Russia can't afford to lose, and assess whether Russia will go ahead, as they have threatened to do, and start targeting NATO supply convoys and chartered 747s flying into Kyiv with weapons and ammunition, Ukraine's military needs. And given that Putin will need some face-saving victory he can show to the Russian people as a result of his disastrous war, we will speculate as to what that might be. Then, with Texas Governor Abbott grandstanding as imports of fruit and vegetables rot on the Mexican border and immigrants are bused to Washington, D.C. as pawns in Abbott's presidential ambitions as he grovels to the Republican right, we'll speak with Yasha Monk, who is a professor of the practice of international affairs at Johns Hopkins University and the founder of Persuasion, an online magazine and podcast on the threats to a free society. A contributing editor at The Atlantic and a senior fellow at the Council on Foreign Relations, he's the author of The People vs. Democracy, Why Our Freedom is in Danger and How to Save It, and we will discuss his latest book out this week, The Great Experiment, Why Diverse Democracies Fall Apart and How They Can Endure. Then finally, we'll examine America's two political orders of the last 100 years, the New Deal and its enemy, neoliberalism, and speak with Gary Gerstel, the Paul Mellon Professor of American History Emeritus and Paul Mellon Director of Research at the University of Cambridge. He's the author and editor of more than 10 books, including American Crucible and Liberty and Coercion, and he's currently a Guardian columnist and has also written for The Atlantic Monthly, The New Statesman, Dissent, The Nation, and Desite, among others. We will discuss his latest book, Just Out, The Rise and Fall of the Neoliberal Order, America and the World in the Free Market Era. And before we go to our first guest, this program is completely independent without corporate sponsors and advertising relying entirely on your support. So we ask you to take a moment and visit backgroundbriefing.org slash donate or go to our nonprofit media foundation at publictruthmedia.org where you can keep us online and on the air on a growing number of stations for as little as $5 a month. Help sustain us into the future so that we can continue to provide breaking news analysis from the most knowledgeable guests at home and abroad. And we've made it easier for you to donate simply by credit card at backgroundbriefing.org slash donate, where your tax-deductible contributions make this program possible. And joining us now is Simon Schuster, reporter for Time magazine based in New York City by way of Moscow, Kiev, and Berlin. He has previously covered Russia and the former Soviet Union for Reuters, the Associated Press, the Moscow Times, and Foreign Policy. And his latest article at Time is A Visit to the Crime Scene Russian Troops Left Behind at a Summer Camp in Bucha. And he joins us from Kiev. Welcome to Background Briefing, Simon Schuster. Thanks. Nice to be with you. Well, thanks for joining us. And it seems that this decisive battle shaping up in the Donbass is one that President Zelensky said that 
Ukraine has to win. It's not as if they fight to a draw. They have to win. And then on the other side, it would seem that Putin has to win as well. He has to take something home to the Russian people to show some sort of success, real or cosmetic. So how do you see this decisive battle shaping up? Um, it's going to be a very difficult one, probably fairly prolonged. Um, the advisors to, the, to Zelensky that I've talked to and, and some military analysts that I've been following um, say that the forces on both sides are, are formidable and, and essentially it's uh, a, a toss-up, uh, as, as one put it, in, in military terms. Um, so uh, it's expected to start in the coming days. Um, there's, there's some rain expected uh, in the coming days in that, in that area and in Kiev, which um, one of Zelensky's advisors told me is very good luck because it prevents... Uh, uh, aerial bombardment from happening, uh, so it, it sort of it grounds a lot of planes. They can't see their targets, so they they don't fly. But other than that, it seems like a lot of the forces are already in position for that battle. Um, it's hard to say if it'll be decisive in this war. Um, it, it depends on how it goes. But but you're right that both sides uh, have uh, an enormous amount at stake. And it, given the rain and and the fact that the that the ground is thawing out uh, in the spring, is is the terrain muddy and therefore not optimal for uh, tank maneuvers? Yeah, I, I think that's right. Uh, and and I mean we've we've seen um, throughout the conflict so far just how uh, ineffective some of these these old-school kind of Soviet or World War II um, tactics are with, with tank movements and, and so on. First of all, when uh, armored combat drones were uh, in, introduced into that context, they proved extremely effective at taking out Russian, Russian tank columns and, and uh, Russian hardware. Um, so uh, I think that was a, a bitter lesson for the Russian side. Uh, they were not expecting to face such uh, resistance from from the air uh, because Ukraine is not uh, does not have a, a major air force, but the drones have been very effective. So um, that's that's a big factor. It's going to be a big factor as well in in the east. Um, but the way it's shaping up, it, it looks like it's going to be uh, a, a major uh, artillery duel. Both sides have an enormous amount of firepower. Um, just these these cannons, howitzers, uh, and, and various, you know, uh, multiple rocket launchers, things like that. They're going to um, fire at each other, and, and that's that's a really devastating weapon. It causes uh, enormous uh, damage to civilian areas, towns, everything around it, because a lot of those rockets, basically all those rockets, are not guided. They're just uh, they're they're lobbed at uh, you know a, a set of uh, coordinates roughly in the direction of the enemy, and uh, they they land where they land. Um, so so it's going to be a, a battle reminiscent of some uh, some battles from decades ago, to be honest, um, with with the use of artillery. Um, and you know, air air power probably is going to figure into it as well. But Ukraine has proven um, pretty good at shooting down uh, Russian aircraft, uh, and they have more and more uh, anti-aircraft systems coming in both shoulder-fired things like uh, Stinger missiles um, and truck-mounted ones that, that uh, are being provided by 
um, European uh, allies, Western allies. So it's it's you know it's 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 hard to say if it's an even match, but it's it's close to it. So um, it's really hard to say um, at this point. No one can say how it's going to go. And the U.S. has supplied counter-battery radar, which apparently is very effective in targeting uh, the Russian artillery. Uh, I'm assuming that that has already mm-hmm. gotten, along with the howitzers, have gotten to the Ukrainians. But I'm surprised to Simon Schuster that the arms are, fl- are flying in literally into the airport in Kiev in, in chartered 747s. And Russia has sent a diplomatic note warning the U.S. and the deputy foreign minister recently warned that they'd start targeting NATO trucks bringing weapons in. That is a line that hasn't been crossed so far. Have the Russians not targeted like 747 sitting on a tarmac in Kiev? That would seem to be if they could target a blow up a shopping mall, they could certainly blow up a 747. Uh, Well, the Russians have have signaled very clearly that uh, any kind of supply lines are uh, targets that they consider, um, you know, r- ripe for attack. Uh, I think it was March 12th or 13th last month, about a month ago, uh, Russia fired a bunch of cruise missiles at a base in western Ukraine that was being used to receive and, and redistribute um, a lot of the aid coming in, the military aid from the west. Um, there was a there was a base near the city of Lviv. So. Uh, Russia has already done that. It hasn't. It hasn't done it recently, um, and it's it's one of the decisions on the Russian side militarily that I think maybe puzzles uh, and also worries people uh, in Kiev. Um, you know, they're they're not sure why Russia is holding back, but that doesn't mean Russia won't uh, won't attack those targets in the future. And what do we? Uh, what are we to make of statements by Vladimir Zelensky and by? Also, the CIA suggesting that Russia might use nuclear weapons. Is that a deduction from the diplomatic note of warning? What's behind that? Hmm. I, I don't know, but yes, that's definitely been a, a stable feature of Russian rhetoric, you know, both on Russian state television. There's, there's almost daily talk of uh, using nuclear weapons, and um, there have been some veiled and not so veiled threats from Russian officials that that is on the table. Um, you know, Russia has an enormous arsenal, both of, of strategic nuclear weapons that you know that could destroy an entire city, um, but also tactical nuclear weapons that are smaller and can be used to target um, uh, a collection of uh, troops or uh, a military base or part of a city. Um, I had a long conversation yesterday with one of Zelensky's uh, military advisors, and uh, we talked about this. Um, and the takeaway for me was essentially that, uh, yes, we know Russia has these things, they're threatening to use them, but but they refuse to allow the fear of that scenario to paralyze them. Um, uh to such an extent that they've continued working in the presidential compound, right? You know, not always uh, underground in the bunkers, but also just in their offices there, where where I've met some of them um, in the usual offices where Zelensky's team would would operate before the war. Um, and and you know, some of them say, like, yes, we know that uh, aerial bombardment um, or one of these hypersonic uh, cruise missiles um, is a major threat. Tactical nuclear weapons are a major threat. 
but we uh, they, they have decided not to run away from the capital and not to leave the compound. So they essentially have to continue working. They've made a decision to continue working uh, in, in spite of that threat. Well, I'm sure Putin is furious about the loss of the flagship for the Black Sea Fleet. Is it possible or is it logical to assume, Simon Schuster, that maybe Putin needs a win here? Is there? I mean, I don't see an end to this war, at least uh, in terms of a peace treaty. I mean, there may be an armistice. But Putin, all along, for the last decade or more, has wanted to destabilize Ukraine on the cheap. So, And the talk about joining NATO, well, you could argue that Ukraine is already a member of NATO. Well, that's, that's where all the weapons are coming from. So is that logical to suggest that maybe, assuming that Putin will accept a kind of cosmetic victory, would that be the best outcome? Well, first, I'd say that Ukrainians certainly don't feel like they're members of NATO. They're grateful for the uh, weapons and, and military and diplomatic support they're getting, but they, they insist constantly that it's not enough, that they need more, that the uh, battle in the East is going to start any minute, and they don't have the hardware that they need to win that that part of the war. Um, so I, I think if they were a NATO ally, uh, the picture would look very different uh, on, on the ground for them and in terms of their senses sense of support from from their allies um i don't know what what putin would uh accept as a face-saving end to the conflict uh i think after the uh, terrible atrocities and war crimes that we saw in bucha outside of kiev that made the negotiating process much more difficult uh, i talked to two of the lead negotiators on the ukrainian side um they told me that they actually wanted to stop the process altogether after the Bucha massacre, and um, because they just couldn't couldn't bear to to look the Russian their Russian counterparts in those negotiations in the face, um, as one of them put it, we wanted uh, revenge, not diplomacy. But it was Zelensky they told me that uh, said even if there's a one percent chance of reaching a, a ceasefire or some kind of armistice through negotiations, we have to continue on that front. And he essentially ordered them to keep going, keep talking, and they have been talking. Um, uh, in, in the last uh, two weeks or so since the Bucha uh, tragedy and, and uh, the massacres in other towns around Kiev have, have become public uh, and, and made headlines around the world. Um, so those negotiations are ongoing. Um, but again, I, I just it's impossible to say what, what would be acceptable for Putin. Um, you know, it's, as the Ukrainians have said, the, the outcome of negotiations are going to be are going to come as the result of the fighting in the east. So depending on uh, how successful they can be in mounting a defense of Ukraine, that will determine their negotiating posture. Uh, and I think that goes the same for the Russians. They're trying to seize territory um, as much as possible. They're trying to take certainly the city of Mariupol um, in order to uh, have something uh, to show for this this terrible war that they started uh, that, that Putin started um, and then come to the negotiating table with with something you know that they can they can demand um, some some gains also that they can take back to the Russian public back home and say you know look we've we've accomplished at least this but uh, it's it's really uh, I wouldn't say it's far from the minds of, of the Ukrainian side but they're very focused on 
the battle in the East that's beginning any day now and, and winning that battle. and uh, They're less focused on, on negotiations. Well, Simon Schuster, I thank you so much for joining us here today from Kiev. Thank you. And again, I've been speaking with Simon Schuster, who's a reporter for Time magazine based in New York City by way of Moscow, Kiev, and Berlin. He was previously covered Russia and the former Soviet Union for Reuters, the Associated Press, the Moscow Times, and Foreign Policy. And his latest article at Time is A Visit to the Crime Scene Russian Troops Left Behind at a Summer Camp in Bucha. And he joined us from Kiev. We're going to take a brief station break. We're back examining why diverse democracies fall apart and how they can endure. Welcome back. I'm Ian Masters, and this is Background Briefing, available 24-7 at backgroundbriefing.org. And joining us now is Yasha Monk, who is the Professor of the Practice of International Affairs at Johns Hopkins University and the founder of Persuasion, an online magazine and podcast on the threats to a free society, a contributing editor at The Atlantic and a senior fellow at the Council on Foreign Relations. He's the author of The People vs. Democracy, Why Our Freedom is in Danger and How to Save It. And his latest book out this week is The Great Experiment, why diverse democracies fall apart and how they can endure. Welcome to Background Briefing, Yasha Monk. Thank you so much. Well, thanks for joining us. And obviously there's threats to democracy in Europe from the re-election of Orban, of course, in, in a rigged election and, and French elections now with Le Pen looking like she could seriously challenge Macron. has a lot of people nervous, and I assume conversely it has Vladimir Putin cheering. But here in the United States, we have a political stunt going on in Washington where the governor of Texas has bused migrants from the border to Washington, D.C. His restrictions on border traffic have resulted in massive amounts of fruits and vegetables rotting. And there are, of course, the restrictions still in place from from the Trump era in terms of COVID restrictions on Immigrants seeking asylum at the border, still 7,000 a day are showing up. The coyotes apparently are telling them that Biden will let you in, which is not the case. So the issue now is pressure is on within the Democratic Party from progressives who want the border open. And there are people like Senator Raphael Warnock, who's up for re-election, and he only barely won in this uh, recent election. So he's trying to sort of restrain the democratic left, if you will. So immigrant policies and the immigrant issue is really front and center here in the United States, and it's not going away. In fact, if anything, it's more intense than ever, particularly over this issue of opening up the border. So in in the context of your book, what kind of political advice would you offer Biden? Because he's clearly getting... Warnock and others are telling him one thing, and the progressives are telling him another. Uh, sure, I mean, you know, the, the the point of the book is really to think about the basic predicament we find ourselves in, which is 
that for the first time in, in history, really, we are trying to build these deeply religiously and ethnically diverse democracies, which actually treat everybody equally. So uh, we've had a lot of democracies in Western Europe, for example, that at the time of the founding were pretty homogeneous um, and have become much more heterogeneous since. And we have a lot of democracies like the United States, which uh, contained a lot of different groups uh, when the Republic was established, but of course subjected some of those groups to extreme forms of domination. And so, uh, you know, what's really new at, at this juncture is to try and build a society uh, in which uh, we're dealing with that diversity and treating everybody equally. And, and the main concern of my book is to show that that is actually a very difficult undertaking, but it has often gone wrong in history when different groups clashed, uh, but, but that we are doing relatively well. But for example, on the question of immigration, uh, we are succeeding better in integrating people and we're succeeding better in giving people the opportunity to rise the socioeconomic ranks than the pessimists on the far right, but also in a lot of the mainstream uh, seem to believe. So that sort of as a background, my, my, my book's task is not to give political advice, but um, I think if I, if I were to be asked by the White House what to do about the border, I would say something that I've observed in many different countries, which is that you can make the case for immigration and for the value of it. And in fact, Americans are more positive about immigration today than they have been uh, in recent memory, according to polls. But you also have to show that you're capable of controlling the border and of being in charge of deciding who comes in and who doesn't. So uh, there doesn't have to be a contrast between saying on the one hand, we're a sovereign nation, we've got to make sure that we pick who comes in and who doesn't come in, and that's perfectly legitimate. But also, by the way, immigrants can make great contributions to this country, and uh, there's all kinds of forms of immigration that we should continue to allow. And of course, there are other factors at play here in terms of the, the global struggle between frail democracies and the rule of law and the encroaching kleptocracies and dictatorships, particularly now that you've got a war in Ukraine and much of the influx of immigrants on the border now are coming from Nicaragua, where there's massive amounts of repression from Venezuela, and even from Ukraine itself. There are Ukrainian refugees stuck down in Tijuana. Um, yeah, absolutely. So there's, there's a connection between these global crises and, and immigration. But ultimately, uh, I think that uh, how much immigration you, you will end up having to the United States and to Western European nations and to other democracies around the world depends much more on the choices we make about the border policies and the immigration policies than on the demand. Um, in, in the sense that already, um, you know, there are many, many more people in the world who would like to come to the United States than, than are allowed to do so. And if we have further crises, uh, you know, that may sort of increase the demand for coming here. But the question is always going to be um, to what extent people are, are, are let in. Um, but I do think it's also important to sort of pry apart these two topics when we're talking about how to build diverse democracies that often just gets reduced to a conversation about immigration. And that's an important part of it. There's important questions to be asked about how you have a humane migration policy that manages uh, inflows. Um, uh, but but the, the fact of the matter is that not just the United States, but virtually all democracies around the world now already are extremely ethnically and religiously heterogeneous. Uh, they already have people in them from uh, all parts of the world. And so what I'm most worried about is to think about how do we manage that diversity in a way that's fair, but that also allows these democracies to thrive, that ensures that they're stable, that avoids the terrible outcomes we've seen so often in history, of extreme subjugation, of genocide, of civil war, 
Uh, and even if the United States no longer had a single immigrant coming in from tomorrow, even if uh, Germany and France and the United Kingdom and Australia no longer had a single immigrant coming in from tomorrow, that fundamental question uh, would remain just as urgent. Well, indeed, your book points out that in 1945, fewer than one in 25 UK residents were foreign-born. Now it's one in seven, and Sweden was almost completely homogeneous. Now one in five residents has non-Swedish roots. And again, I'm speaking with Yasha Monk, who is the Professor of the Practice of International Affairs at Johns Hopkins University and the founder of Persuasion, an online magazine and podcast on the threats to a free society. He's a contributing editor at The Atlantic and a senior fellow at the Council on Foreign Relations and is the author of The People versus Democracy, Why Our Freedom is in Danger and How to Save It. And his latest book out this week is The Great Experiment, Why Diverse Democracies Fall Apart and How They Can Endure. And it used to be through the, the 20th century that U.S. immigration policies was Europeans only, basically. Uh, but what is it now? Four-fifths come from Asia and Africa and other non-white countries? Yes, yeah, so a great majority of immigrants now come from Latin America and Africa and, and, and Asia. Um, and that is a result of uh, a change in the immigration laws in the mid to late 1960s. Uh, which uh, at first opened the country up for more high-qualified immigration, uh, H-1B visas and so on, and then a lot of those immigrants um, sponsored family members, and so uh, the the composition of immigration changed radically as a result of those laws passed in, in the 1960s, which, by the way, was not predicted by politicians at the time. Lyndon Baines Johnson, when signing that piece of legislation, said, this is not going to change America in any significant way. It's not going to change the demographic balance in the country. Uh, and that turned out, uh, interestingly, to be wrong. So back to your book, your metaphor for what you see as a, as a kind of new form of patriotism is a well-functioning public park, uh, which is Brooklyn's Prospect Park, where it's bustling yet peaceful and heterogeneous without being fragmented. I would offer an, an example here nearby where I live. There's a, a public high school where if you drive by there in the lunch break, you see this, the kids pouring out, and it's a sort of rainbow coalition of these beautiful mixed-race children. And it's a joy to behold, frankly, if anything, the, the white students are the, the kind of the bland ones. So this is happening before our eyes. It's changing, and and the young seem to be completely okay with it. So is it really just this sort of atavism amongst the older Americans, going back to, of course, Ronald Reagan's election was entirely atavistic, trying to sort of recreate the world of Aussie and Harriet, where blacks and Latinos were invisible, and then, of course, MAGA, Made America Great Again, is, a, is also a reactionary appeal to that kind of atavism. So do we have a form of secession underway where half the country wants to sort of put up walls and become a kind of white-only Christian redoubt and don't want to live with the rest of us? Or is there a way that they can see what I see and what you see? Yeah, look, you know, I think it, it, it's really helpful to think about what the baseline here is. And, um, you know, I think a lot of people are optimistic about human nature and then become really pessimistic about the current state of our society. And I'm actually pessimistic about many aspects of human nature. And then, uh, paradoxically, that makes me much more optimistic about my description of what's going on in the United States today. So if you think, you know, 
it should be really easy to love everybody and to get along and, and, and to be super tolerant. But yet we have these injustices in our society. We have these uh, far-right voices uh, that, that claim that this uh, demographic change is a huge problem. And then it's easy to despair and to say there's something sort of uniquely screwed up about our society. Um, and that's a tempting narrative. It's, it's one that I believed in for, for a long time. Um, but for, for this book, I've really thought about the history of diverse societies in the world, and I've really thought about human psychology. I read a lot of studies which show just how easily um, people form groups and discriminate against outsiders. Um, uh, and that's a nearly universal trait. In fact, my students who are incredibly ethnically diverse, who pride themselves in being incredibly tolerant, probably are some of the most tolerant people in the world, uh, when you ask them whether a hot dog is a sandwich or not, um, and they argue about this for a little while, and some say a hot dog is a sandwich, and some say a hot dog is not a sandwich, and then you have them play uh, a simple game where they give points to each other that can be redeemed for money, they then start to discriminate against each other on the basis of whether or not they think that a hot dog is a sandwich. So this this human tendency to form these groups and discriminate against outsiders goes really, really deep. And we've seen in the history of humanity how often this has led to just the most violent civil wars, to genocide, um, to, to the Holocaust, to, to the genocide in Rwanda, to just the, the most terrible, darkest chapters of human history. And so then when, when you look at our society from that vantage point, from the ease of which we discriminate against each other as humans, from the many times in history that uh, uh, places where different groups had to coexist, just went wrong in the most horrific ways, when actually I think you start to see our reality in a, in a more optimistic way. And you start to perceive for all of the challenges at the political level, for all of the concern I have about uh, Donald Trump potentially getting reelected in 2024, uh, you also see the strength of our society today. You're talking about mixed race children. You know, uh, 30 years ago, a majority of Americans thought that uh, uh, people of different ethnicities marrying each other was immoral. And about one in 33 children in America was mixed race. Uh, today, the number of Americans who think that interracial marriage is immoral is down into the single digits, um, uh, uh, very, very low. Uh, and that's not just people, you know, lying to pollsters to, uh, you know, because they want to hide their racism. It's an actual change in society. We now have about one in seven uh, newborns in the country uh, being mixed race. We actually see a deep integration of society, a real change at the grassroots level. And so, um, uh, you know, uh, I share your anger at the injustices of today, but I think I actually have a more positive view as to what's going on in the in the heart of society, not just among the young, um, but but among most uh, ordinary Americans. Well, I mentioned earlier Viktor Orban and Le Pen, and now you've got Putin and Trump. So these sort of bad actors do exacerbate and stir up racial resentments and divisions. Although, you know, the Yugoslav war, of course, there was no, not one bit of genetic difference between Croats and Serbs, yet they murdered each other in droves. And there's certainly no DNA differences there between Russians and uh, Ukrainians. Um, well, what, what we see is that uh, people are able to uh, sort of organize into groups and hate each other on grounds that might seem arbitrary from the outside. Um, you know, think about... Um, Catholics and Protestants getting on pretty well together in the United States. If they're devout, they probably think of each other as political allies. Um, but through a lot of European history, 
minor theological differences between Catholics and Protestants or within different Protestant sects. We have a reason for the most terrible wars and uh, and 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 civil wars and and slaughter and murder and we still see in Northern Ireland today uh, what that can mean. So you're right that um, uh, you know all kinds of different divisions can drive those conflicts. But of course, it is particularly difficult. Um, the bigger the religious differences, the bigger the cultural differences, and the more salient the ethnic differences. And so uh, you know in the United States and and in other diverse democracies today, I do think that we're uh, playing at a raised difficulty level. Um, but that makes it all the more impressive uh, that uh, by and large, uh, we are actually succeeding, but by and large, our society is reasonably peaceful. Now, um, uh, when we allow ourselves to despair and when we allow ourselves to become really pessimistic, when people on the far right say nothing is working, these people aren't integrating at all, you know, that is what Marine Le Pen and Eric Zemmour have been saying in France, um, you know, these, 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 these Muslim immigrants in particular, they're just not integrating at all. Um, they're completely opposed to our country and to our civilization. And then from mainstream society and from the left of society, you don't have a positive counter vision of the society that most people actually would like to live in. But rather you have, well, our society is completely unjust and, and terrible and nothing is working in a different kind of flavor. That creates a political environment which allows some of those candidates to win a majority of the vote and win. Um, and, you know, a week from now, we have a second round of these French presidential elections. It is probably likely that Emmanuel Macron, uh, the moderate uh, uh, incumbent, is going to be narrowly re-elected. But we are now closer to a genuine far-right figure winning the French presidency than we have uh, at any point since World War II. And that, I think, is precisely because of his fashionable pessimism about the state of what I call the great experiment in the new book, um, not just on the far right, but also in the mainstream of society, also on the left of society. So just in closing, Ian Honey Lopez at Berkeley has written about dog whistle politics. And among the, the cleavages and struggles we have, as we've mentioned, between the global struggle between frail democracies and the rule of law and the encroachment of kleptocracies and autocracies. That's one. And then the divisions within our own country, which you have written about in terms of trying to heal these divisions in the great experiment. But is there also this other division, the struggle here in this country between plutocracy and democracy, and in the sense that we're divided in many ways by the sort of cynicism of the plutocracy because if we all saw what we have in common, particularly economically in this, in this increasingly unequal economy, that we would find <laughs> common ground. But, you know, racial divisions and ethnic divisions are, are being used cynically to divide us. Do you buy into that thesis? Uh, I, I partially buy into that thesis. So I do think that in many ways, we have substantive commonalities and we have commonalities of interest across ethnic and religious boundaries, which are more important than what divides us. And some of the points when I get most upset with my own friends who tend to be on the left is when they start to talk in essentializing terms about race, uh, about identity, which basically say we can't understand each other if we have a different color of skin. We can't understand each other if we've had different experiences. Um, I argue that uh, we, of course, have the obligation to listen to each other carefully, but it is, of course, easy 
to be ignorant about the injustices that groups to which we don't ourselves belong face. But of course we are able to communicate across those boundaries. And of course we should aim to have genuine political solidarity with each other in the pursuit of common interests and common ideals that transcend those, those ethnic and religious boundaries. So I'm, I'm, I 100% agree with you on that. But perhaps let me close by saying something uh, a little more uncomfortable because um, I, I tend to think that in this discourse, it's easy for people like you and me, who are upper middle class, who lead pretty privileged lives, uh, to point at the billionaires and say, you know, it's the super rich, it's, it's the real plutocrats, you know, they're dividing all of us. Um, but what I see in American society is also an upper middle class, a top 10%, perhaps a top 15%, uh, which is pretty out of touch with the rest of the country and has often uh, uh, refused to have genuine solidarity with the rest of the country. I see people who are highly educated at, at elite universities, like the one I teach at, um, I'm part of this, um, who you know look down at ordinary Americans and say, uh, you know, we are the enlightened ones, we are the good ones, and when they're upset, when when they're angry, it must be that they're just being irrational, that they're just being atavistic. And uh, I think a lot of the time, it would behoove us well to to listen more carefully to the concerns to our fellow citizens and to assume in a democracy that, that most people most of the time are actually capable of listening to moral motives um, and and probably speak from a real place when 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 they're angry. Um, and I remember a really interesting article by Ian, who you mentioned in the New York Times just before the 2020 election, saying that he assumed that Latino voters would uh, see the world in a particular kind of way, which accorded with the narratives that we're comfortable with in, in our uh, upper middle class bubble. Uh, but actually, in a lot of ways, they shared uh, the anger uh, of a white working class um, uh, about uh, the ways in which they felt economically displaced, but also the ways in which they felt culturally disrespected. Um, and so, uh, so, yes, I think we need to make common cause across ethnic and, and religious boundaries, um, but, but that might also require some self-reflection uh, among people like you and me. Well, Yajimonka, I thank you so much for joining us here today. I appreciate it. Thank you so much. And again, I've been speaking with Yasha Monk, who is the professor of the practice of international affairs at Johns Hopkins University and the founder of Persuasion, an online magazine and podcast on the threats to a free society, a contributing editor at The Atlantic and a senior fellow at the Council on Foreign Relations. He's the author of The People Versus Democracy, Why Our Freedom is in Danger and How to Save It. And his latest book out this week is The Great Experiment, Why Diverse Democracies Fall Apart and How They Can Endure. We're going to take a brief station break. We're back examining America's two political orders of the last 100 years, the New Deal and its enemy, neoliberalism. There's a place where I've been told Every street is paved with gold And it's just across the borderline
Welcome back. I'm Ian Masters, and this is Background Briefing, available 24-7 at backgroundbriefing.org. And joining us now is Gary Gerstel, who is the Paul Mellon Professor of American History Emeritus and the Paul Mellon Director of Research at the University of Cambridge. He's the author and editor of more than 10 books, including American Crucible and Liberty and Coercion. He's currently a columnist for The Guardian and has also written for The Atlantic Monthly, The New Statesman, Dissent, The Nation and Desite, among others. And his latest book just out is The Rise and Fall of the Neoliberal Order, America and the World in the Free Market Era. Welcome to Background Briefing, Gary Gerstel. Thank you very much. It's good to be here with you. Well, thanks for joining us. And you point out that in the last 100 years, America's had two political orders. The New Deal order that rose in the 1930s and 1940s, crested in the 1950s and 1960s and fell in the 1970s, and the neoliberal order that arose in the 1970s and 1980s, crested in the 1990s and 2000s, and fell in the 2010s. So, Gary, what's next? Oh, that's a wonderful question. And and as a historian, I can say I study the past, but not the future. Uh, let me say a word about, uh, uh, we don't know what's coming next, although I think we are in, in a very much in a, in a period of transition. Let me say a word about uh, what a political order is. It's a, it's a concept that helps us to think beyond the two, four, and six-year election cycles in American history that dominate so much commentary and discussion. It's always who's the presidential nominee going to be and who's going to be elected and, and, and who's, the, who's the right person, who's the right party. Uh, in my book, I suggest that there are longer waves uh, of American history, and these are what I call political orders. And political orders are complex projects involving, of course, candidates, parties, constituencies, but also think tanks, um, policy centers, uh, a moral code that has a story about how Americans should live the good life. Uh, They require media outlets, media platforms uh, to influence opinion at the highest level, like the Supreme Court and, and also popular culture. So these are hard to put together, uh, and they, they take time. Uh, and But when they succeed, they endure because they acquire, there's usually a dominant party, the Democratic Party for the New Deal order and the Republican Party for the neoliberal order. And what a party does when its political order is riding high is, is to dominate politics in a way that um, compels the opponents to play on their turf, so to speak. So I talk about Eisenhower acquiescing to the principles of the New Deal, regulated capitalism that the Republican Party had not been in support of. And I talk about during the neoliberal order, uh, the uh, uh, Clinton becoming a kind of democratic Eisenhower, acquiescing to the free market principles of neoliberalism and bringing the Democratic Party along. And when these orders are riding high, uh, it's very hard for alternative ideas to to get a fair shake. And when these orders begin to crack, usually as a result of an economic crash or depression like the Great Recession of 2008-2009, that opens up uh, opportunities for other voices to come into politics. And if we look at the decade of the 20-teens, the second decade of the 21st century, uh, what's remarkable about that decade is that two political figures utterly inconsequential in the 1990s and first decade of the 21st century. I'm thinking, of course, of Donald Trump and Bernie Sanders become the two most 
dynamic players in American politics in that second decade of the 21st century. Uh, and that's a sign that neoliberalism and its hegemony was coming apart and idea and, and the political and politics was coming um, was becoming open to new voices. As to what comes next, um, we can see on the right uh, uh, a Trump style authoritarianism, a political order that uh, is not very careful about democratic procedures, democratic forms, um, the democratic heritage of the United States. And on the other side, we can see Biden in conversation with the left that Bernie Sanders uh, is representing, trying to put together a progressive political order that will recapture some of the magic of the New Deal in terms of its power, its influence on American society, but in a way that is suitable for the 21st century and the third decade of that century that we are already in. So uh, we are in a period of disorder and disarray, and one can see alternative political orders beginning to take shape and aspire to power. But I would say right now, America is so divided, one can't say with confidence that one order, an order of the right, the authoritarian one, is going to triumph over the progressive order of the left or or vice versa. We are in a moment of contention and uh, and disarray. And the ingredients of a, of a political order are, are all around us. But how they will cohere and when they will cohere and whether they will cohere uh, that is the story for the next five or 10 years. So we we had arguably a social democracy in the United States, nothing like the Europeans, but we had a form of it from, say, 1944 to 1977. And it seems that neoliberalism is the enemy of social democracy. I mean, wages have been flacked since the late 70s. And when Reagan came in, he cut the taxes on the wealthy and and cut the revenues and then increased defense spending dramatically, foreclosing a lot of domestic spending. And also the big change that he undertook there was that prior to Reagan, America was a savings economy, and then it became a credit-based economy uh, where people had the illusion of the standard of living rising, but the Fed was, I mean, banks were able to get money for about 1% and charge it back at 18%. So, you know, the fact that to this day, two out of three dollars in discretionary funding go to the Pentagon. So neoliberalism may have collapsed, but military Keynesianism lives on. Well, there, were, there, there will certainly be elements of neoliberalism that survive, even if, even as the neoliberal order falls, just as in the case with the New Deal order. Social Security survives, but I don't think anyone would say we're living in the era of the New Deal order. You're absolutely right that the New Deal order should be understood as America's form of social democracy, somewhat weaker than in Europe, but still social democratic. The the core idea of the neoliberal order was to, uh, it, well, if the core idea of the New Deal order was to regulate capitalism in the public interest with the understanding that if you let capitalism do its thing in an un unregulated way, chaos and inequality and a lot of destruction would be the result. If that was the core idea of the uh, the New Deal order, the core idea of, of the neoliberal order was to free the economy from its government shackles, to let people be entrepreneurial, to lower tax rates, to let them keep their money, to get the government out of people's business, both in terms of their entrepreneurialism and in terms of their identities and, and personal life. This is the core of 
the neoliberal message and it appeals very deeply to traditional American notions of American freedom, which is one reason why it's been so strong and, and has had such a strong run in the United States. You're right to point to the extraordinary military expenditures during the neoliberal era, beginning with Reagan and continuing even after the end of the Cold War, moderated a little bit in the 1990s. Part of what uh, neoliberal philosophy believes is that you are allowed to have a strong state for the sake of constructing and sustaining free markets. And if you need a strong military to do that, that becomes a legitimate activity on the part of the state. And so neoliberalism accommodated itself pretty easily to the very high levels of military spending. And this does ref uh, indicate a form of very heavy state involvement in the economy. And it can be it can have stimulating effects and and overstimulating effects. And that, you know, that will continue. And I think Ukraine is going to increase the military budget even more, uh, but it's not to say that that survives is not to say that the neoliberal order is continuing because I think what we what we have seen in the last few years is a collapse in the belief in the sanctity of free markets that they must be protected and nourished above all other cons considerations. Uh, Trump was not a fan of free markets. Sanders is not a fan of free markets. The pandemic made clear that we need much more government involvement in the economy, that free markets are, are not capable of dealing with a virus of this magnitude. So the kind of uh, hegemony and control that neo, neoliberalism had when it was a successful order, it no longer has that prestige. It no longer has that hegemony. Its ideas are being uh, contested. So the U.S. will continue to have a very large military and the Ukraine events are going to fuel that but the theologizing of free markets as the goal that in political economic terms a society should be striving towards above all else, I think that idea is, is in disarray and is declining. And that opens up space for Americans and other people in the world to put forward different ways about the ways in which capitalism and government should relate to each other and also allows us to think in ways we have not thought for a long time about perhaps raising tax rates. Um, Biden has put a, a corporate tax, a global corporate tax. There's also a talk of a billionaire's tax. There's a lot of antitrust discussion, bring, uh, breaking up the big institutions of capital, which you could not talk about during the and get anyone to listen to you during the neoliberal heyday. Uh, so these are all signs of a, of a political order fracturing and other ideas coming into play that have been consigned to the margins for a very long period of time. And again, I'm speaking with Gary Gerstel, who's the Paul Mellon Professor of American History Emeritus and the Paul Mellon Director of Research at the University of Cambridge. He's the author and editor of more than 10 books, including American Crucible and Liberty and Coercion. And his latest book just out is The Rise and Fall of the Neoliberal Order, America and the World in a Free Market Era. And Gary Gerstel, even though Thatcher and Reagan may have uh, initiated neoliberalism, there's no question that Bill Clinton consolidated it. In 1993, he signed NAFTA. Uh, in uh, 1994, he endorsed the World Trade Organization. In 1996, he deregulated the telecom industry. And then in 1999, he supported the repeal of the Glass-Steagall Act. And of course, we know what that led to in 2008. So I guess in many ways, it seems that people on the sort of socialist left are the ones that are most 
angry at, at least from my observation, at neoliberalism. And how much do you think is Bill Clinton a legitimate target? Well, he is a legitimate target in in, in one sense. I, I call him the um, Democratic Eisenhower because he led a campaign to get the Democratic Party to acquiesce to Reagan's economic ideas, much as Eisenhower led the campaign in the Republican Party to get that party to acquiesce to New Deal ideas when Eisenhower became president in the 1950s. And I argue in the book that uh, Clinton may have done more to secure the ascendancy of neoliberalism than even Reagan had. Uh, so he's he definitely plays an important role in this story, and and I devote a lot of attention to him and his policies in the 1990s. But I'm not really interested in a blame game in, in that respect. Part of my argument is that the uh, the if we're to understand this as a political order, that reduces the agency and autonomy and freedom that individual politicians had. And I think uh, Clinton uh, took a sized up the landscape. He came in with great ambitions, including a, a near socialistic health care plan that got uh, blown up very quickly. And he, he took another measure of the political environment. And he said the only way to succeed and get elected as a Democratic president is if I go along with these core ideas. So I, I want to stress not just that I don't want to argue that he was a, a bad man and even necessarily that a bad a bad president. I'm arguing that he was operating in an environment where he, where if he were, felt he was to be successful, he had little choice um, but to follow these policies. W one of the left-leaning members of his administration, Joe Stiglitz, the Nobel Prize-winning economist, uh, and uh, one of one of the you know and clearly on the left of the Clinton administration, uh, reflecting in his book called The Roaring Nineties later on his experience, uh, said something very interesting. He referred to John F. Kennedy going to Berlin in 1961 and saying, uh, "We are all Berliners now." And Stiglitz takes off from that and said says, "In the 1990s, we meaning not just Republicans, not just centrist Democrats, but." progressive left-wing Democrats. He said, we are all deregulators now. We have all joined and embraced the gospel of free markets. And uh, Stiglitz uh, is, in, in a sense, amazed at himself and, and the fact that he had gone along with this. And he is the man that one would have really expected to have put a stop to this. And I'm sure he did at times in cabinet discussions, uh, not cabinet discussions, but uh, discussions within the administration. And even he, reflecting on his actions and behaviors then, felt that he himself uh, had gone too far in terms of embracing free markets. This was also the moment of techno-utopianism, the IT revolution, uh, belief that markets could be perfected, governments were no longer needed, America had won the Cold War. It was a kind of utopianism and hubris uh, and technologically based um, wonder of the future that got a lot of people to, in a sense, go against perhaps their their better instincts. So it's not just Clinton. It's a much broader movement. But Clinton is at the center, and he's crucial to the triumph of the neoliberal order. And as you point out, in 1991, the year of the Soviet Union's dissolution, the pressure on capitalist elites and their supporters to compromise with the working class vanished. The dismantling of the welfare state and the labor movement marched in tandem with communism's collapse. 
Yes, I, I, I stress a lot in the book bringing the uh, rise and fall of communism. And here I'm thinking of global communism, not just domestic communism in the United States. Uh, I stress very much the rise and fall of communism uh, as shaping global politics and shaping uh, American politics. Uh, Theodore Draper, once a communist and then a determined anti-communist who became a, a journalist, commentator, historian, said the um, uh, the 20th century was the communist century. And in some respects, uh, he was right. And the communist revolution of 1917 was a world historical event. And so much that happened in the world after that had to take account of that. And communism instilled fear in, in the heart and in, in a lot of people and in a lot of countries. And I say part of what sustained um, the New Deal beyond Roosevelt's death during the Cold War was America's fear of communist expansion and that, and that wherever communism expanded, capitalism um, could not thrive or, or even exist. And it persuaded America to undertake a global containment campaign, military and otherwise of a sort that it had, it had never done uh, in its enti entire history. Uh, and a part of the effect was that capitalists in America began to think that they had a compromise with their opponents, their domestic opponents, the labor movement, the poor, ordinary men and women. They had to demonstrate not only that capitalism was powerful, but that capitalism was capable of redistrib redistributing its fruits in a fairly egalitarian manner so that all Americans would benefit and not just elites. And during this moment, the heyday of the Cold War, this is when the labor movement in America was at its strongest. This is when the welfare state was at its most expansive. This is when inequality, economic inequality uh, in America was at its narrowest point in the 20th century. And I, and I argue that this was part of the effect of the communist threat because the communist threat was regarded as so severe that it inclined capitalists in, in America to make the kind of compromises that they otherwise would not have contemplated. And after communism falls in the late 80s and early 90s, that pressure that had been there to get capitalists to compromise with their with the labor movement with the poor in American society that pressure was no longer there and one measure of this uh, if we ask what is what was the ratio of CEO pay to an ordinary workers pay in 1960 and then we ask what is the ratio in 2000 a year after communism fell in 1960 the ratio is about 20 to 1 a CEO is making about 20 times what an ordinary worker made and by 2000 that figure has ballooned to 300 times what an ordinary worker makes. And so uh, the, the inequality, which had been moderated during the years of the Cold War and during the years of the communist threat, uh, it, that inequality began to increase. And so we have levels of inequality in the 21st century resembling the worst levels of inequality in America in the late 19th and early 20th centuries. So just in closing, if the 20th century was a century of communism, will the 21st century be the century of autocrats, kleptocrats, and fascists? Uh, certainly not the whole century. Uh, I think we, we have to, you do have to recognize that authoritarianism is on the rise, that uh, authoritarian leaders recognize themselves in each other, Trump, Putin, Erdogan, Orban, Modi in India, Duarte in the Philippines, Bolsonaro 
in Brazil. Uh, they recognize themselves in each other. They are critical of democracy. They think what societies need is a strong hand and a strong leader. And they may yet succeed for a time. In other words, we may live in a world that is far more authoritarian for 10 or 20 or 30 years. But I'm a great believer that the, um, the instinct for democracy is irrepressible in people, the desire to be self-governing, the desire uh, that nations be governed democratically is very, very strong. And I do believe that even if authoritarianism triumphs, democracy uh, at some point uh, will resurge. Exactly where it will resurge and who will the leader be? Uh, this something similar happened in the 1930s and 40s, of course, and the United States became a leader in terms of uh, helping the world to reclaim its democratic heritage. Will the United States be in a position to trigger that renaissance in the 21st century? I'm not sure that's the case. And if the United States is not capable of tricking, uh, triggering that resurgence, what other country or block of countries will lead the way? I can't answer that question, but sometimes it's enough to pose the question to get it out there to get people talking about it. Uh, but I do believe that even if, if authoritarianism does triumph, its triumph will be temporary. Well, Gary Gaston, I thank you so much for joining us here today. Uh, it's very good of you to have me. Thank you very much. And again, I've been speaking with Gary Gerstel, who is a Paul Mellon Professor of American History Emeritus and Paul Mellon Director of Research at the University of Cambridge. He's the author and editor of more than 10 books, including American Crucible and Liberty and Coercion. And he's currently a columnist for The Guardian, and he's also written for The Atlantic Monthly, The New Statesman, Dissent, The Nation, and Desite, among others. And his latest book just out is The Rise and Fall of the Neoliberal Order, America and the World in the Free Market Era. This has been Background Briefing. I'm Ian Masters, and I'd like to thank producer Graham Fitzgibbon. And to help us sustain this program into the future and assure it remains free to all, please take a moment to support us by going to backgroundbriefing.org slash donate or publictruthmedia.org, where you will find our nonprofit Public Truth Media Foundation, where your tax-deductible donations, large and small, keep us broadcasting. And if you missed any of today's program and would like to explore our vast archives, you can find us at backgroundbriefing.org, where we'll include extended interviews searchable by topic and have made it easy for you to sign up for daily email updates that provide links to resources, articles, and books discussed on the program. Also, you can find links there to subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. And we also encourage your ratings and reviews on these platforms. Find us on Twitter and Facebook at Ian Masters Media. And please do help us reach more listeners by sharing this program with friends, family, and colleagues. And I'll be back again tomorrow with another background briefing at backgroundbriefing.org. Bye for now. The guy that lived next door in 305 Took the kids to the park and disappeared by half past nine